I'm going to pray. You guys have to make the room feel way more full and laugh hysterically, even if I'm not funny tonight. All right. Amen. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Lord, thank you for blessing us tonight. And Lord, I thank you that um, we are a family and we're so grateful to gather together and feed upon the riches of your word, to have our hearts encouraged and blessed and to have our eyes open to the perspective that you have for us and to take our eyes off of the the things in front of us, but to see you high and lifted up. And so, Lord, I pray encouragement for your people tonight and blessing upon them. And thank you, Lord, for this picture in the hall of faith to encourage our hearts. So we love you, Lord, and we're grateful. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, hall of faith, let me begin like I always do every Wednesday night with uh, verse one of chapter 11. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And then verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so we see a list of all of these folks in the hall of faith to give us faith and strength. These are folks in the past that have given their testimony and their names to the fact that you can follow the Lord and it, it, is, it is worth every investment of your life. And we've gone through a number of them and I've been blessed by every single one. And uh, this evening, we're gonna take a look at an interesting couple. Um, and I wanna figure out how we're gonna do this. Let's, yeah, let's, let's go to uh, verse 23. You ready? By faith, Moses when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Amen? All right, then who are his parents? (laughs) Mr. and Mrs. Moses. Anybody know? uh, Seriously, I will buy you dinner at Wood Ranch if you can tell me without looking at your iPhones who are the parents of Moses. Ooh, you get half a dinner, but I, yeah. All right, turn with me, turn with me to Exodus chapter six. Exodus chapter six. Exodus chapter six. And let's go to verse 20. Ready? Now, Amram took for himself Jochebed. His father's sister. <laughs> it's his aunt and his wife. Isn't the Bible great? I mean, it just doesn't leave anything out, does it? Amram took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife, and she bore him Aaron, Aaron, and Moses. And they also had Miriam. Miriam was uh, 10 years older than Moses, by the way. So she, they only list the male children for sake of lineage. And uh, the years after the life of Amram were 137. We can stop there. So Amram, Amran, and Jochebed. Jochebed's the mother. Amran's the father. We know a little bit about Jochebed, but we don't know a lot about him. We know a lot about her. Not a lot, but we know enough uh, because we're going to see her in the story. So um, the whole thing, this whole picture of faith that we read In verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. So we know that both mom and dad hid him for three months, uh, which is hard to do. I mean, a kid's born, you you can't time when they're going to cry. And and you're thinking, why did they have to hide him? We'll cover that in a minute. Because they saw that he was a beautiful child. And this idea of beautiful is not the countenance as much as they could see that there was an anointing or a blessing. They could see there was something remarkably special about this child. That's the idea in the Greek, this idea of beautiful. The countenance reflected that there was something unbelievably special about this child. And they were not afraid of the king's command. So let's say that again, not afraid of the king's command. Because I want to read you a couple of things. Uh, this is out of Romans 13, 1. Let every soul be subject to the higher authorities. Titus 3, 1. Be subject to principalities and powers to obey magistrates. And yet the scripture says that they weren't afraid of the king's command. The king gave a command and they rebelled against the command. So 
we got some rebels on our hands here. Interesting set of folks. Let's see who they are. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Ready? Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob or Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and grew exceeding, exceedingly mighty and the land was filled with them. This idea of and is a Hebrew form of writing where there's, there's a, a, a movement of God, and, and, and. And then you see verse eight, and there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Yeah, let's stop there for a second. There's a change in leadership. I remember Bob McEwen sharing when he was a freshman congressman in, in Ohio, And he had to time himself to travel from Ohio to Washington, D.C. because Carter was in office and all the gas stations were shut. Some of you remember, remember when we had to ration gasoline and and the gas stations were shut and sometimes you had an odd license plate or an even one and you line up for gasoline and it was terrible and he'd have to time it all the way to Washington to get there. And he said... The hostages, we, you know, helicopters had crashed in the desert. Uh, we had hostages in Iran. The, the, the whole nation, Carter's coming on the television telling us to wear sweaters and, and that we need to, you know, try harder as Americans. And, and there was a depression and double-digit interest rates, and it was just awful. I remember this vividly. And drinking Billy beer, his brother's beer. I don't I'm just kidding. But, but I remember how intense it was. And then, and then um, Bob McEwen said, I remember... Reagan gets into office, the hostages are returned, and every gas station from Ohio to Washington, D.C. was lit up again. Everything changed overnight. Now, what happened? Leadership. Leadership changed. Everything was the same the day before as it was the day after, but the leadership had changed, and so all of a sudden, everything is different. Well, this is what we see here. Remember with Joseph that he comes in, he rises in authority under Pharaoh's command. He, he has the vision from God, seven skinny cows, seven fat cows. The skinny cows consume the fat cows. Remember that? Seven years of, of famine or seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And so they store up grain. And, and we watched in the video as these, these smaller districts started to, to lessen in their authority. And then one Pharaoh rose because there was a centralization of the wealth in Egypt. And we watched all this trend take place before our very eyes. And so all this happens. And then Joseph is blessed. He brings his father and all these people in and they, they occupy this very fertile area and they grow. And we, we saw with the Semitic people, uh, we, we saw the, the findings, the archeological findings, all these things took place. Well, now it changes. What changes? Well, we see right here, it says, verse eight, now there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Basically, I don't know who you are and I don't care. Now, I, I can tell you, I remember, I remember being in the second grade at Central Elementary School in Coronado, California. And I remember my teacher, Mrs. Noss, leading the entire class in prayer. I remember it vividly. I remember bringing my knife to school for show and tell. I remember when you used to be a walk on airplanes. I remember when prayer was common. I remember a number of things. Could you imagine any of that occurring today? Everything switched. I remember gay being happy, right? I remember remember a pastor saying, our youth have to be on fire for the Lord like a bunch of flaming faggots. And he was talking about burning sticks. You say that today? You get giggles, right? The lexicons changed. I remember rainbows represented Noah. Everything's changed in one generation. One generation. I remember learning and having to memorize. um, Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. Anyone else memorize that? Okay, how many people had to memorize that? Raise your hand. 
Nice and high. Nice and high, please. Okay. How many people have never heard of it? Raise your hand. That was our generation. Yours, you have no clue of our founders. You learn no stories. You didn't learn about the pilgrims. You didn't learn about any of it. A total revamp. God has been forgotten and removed from the culture, taken off the edifices of our buildings. This is the idea. Here you have somebody honoring the Jewish people, blessing them, and then a new king comes in and everything changes. Well, let's see what happens. The Jews are in favor. Now a new king comes in, verse nine. And this king said to his people, look, the people and the children of Israel are more mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up and out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. And their service in which they made them was with rigor. Uh, verse 15, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one of them was Shifra, and the name of the other was Pua. Or, that's a weird one, isn't it? What's your name? Pua. Huma huma nuka nuka Pua. <laughs> and he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, see them on the birth stools. If it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then he then she shall live. But the midwives feared God. Important. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Their labors are quick, basically. Verse 20, therefore God dealt with the midwives dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. Hmm. God blesses those who don't honor the king's command. How does that apply to Romans 13? How, how, does, how does that apply to Titus 3.1? Honor those in authority. I, I heard one pastor that I've been contending with. He has no idea who I am, but I contend with him and, and dream that he cares. But he has a major radio program, and uh, he's, he's well-known. He's a good Bible teacher. But he believes that our founders were out of the will of God and were rebels, according to Romans 13 and Titus 3. So how does that fit? Why did God bless the midwives for disobeying the king? And here we're going to see with, with Jochebed, and Amron, that they disobeyed the king's command as well. We'll take a look at that in a moment. Verse 22, so Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born, you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. Now go to chapter two. And a man of the house of Levi went and took a wife, took his wife, a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And we know who this is. It's Amron and Jochebed. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch. And by the way, the word pitch is kafar, which is covering or atonement. It's the same that went on the outside of the ark. It's the same word we use for atonement. Fascinating, by the way. Here we go. Uh, covered it with kafar or pitch, put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off. Miriam by this time is 10 years old. She's 10 years old. She's watching as they're taking her little brother, putting him in a little basket filled with tar and, and, and just setting it off into the Nile. Like, that's my little brother. But why are you, you know, because we're going to kill him. And she knew the story. Every night they had to keep him quiet and muffle his cries and do whatever they could. And she watches this, probably tears in her eyes, and sees this little boy get set down the river. She stood afar off to know what would be done with him. She was concerned. Isn't that what a little 10-year-old sister would do? I watched Molly and Kelly and Natasha take care of the boys. They had four mothers. And, and there was a concern for them. You know, and that's, that's the picture with Miriam. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. Talk about the Lord. She wakes up and she goes, man, I stink. And the Lord just probably had the extra bacteria in her armpits and just really made it go nuts. And 
She woke up, just went, whoa, I can't even stand being with myself. I must go bathe. She goes down to bathe at the exact moment. God orchestrates it. (laughs) All the birds are falling out of the trees, and it's just, no, I'm kidding. And her maidens walked along the riverside from a distance because she stunk. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw a child, and behold, the baby wept. The baby wept. Something pathetic in a cry of a baby. Now, a beautiful child with a countenance, could you imagine if she opened it up and it's just cooing? And that's one thing. You go, oh, my goodness. And when you go to pick a puppy, you don't want the one yelping and whining. You want the one that's all happy and just complacent and kind and sweet, and you're looking at the litter. And this is crying. And the idea of weeping is it's, it's wailing. I, I, I'm a busy guy. I don't want a dog that's going to be whining all the time. We just got a puppy, and we picked the one that doesn't whine. And this, this child's crying. And it's interesting how the Lord knew what would touch her heart. Watch this. So she had compassion on him. The word compassion in the Hebrew means her heart was broken. She just, it just, something in her maternal instincts, something in her past, something, whatever it was, it triggered and just clicked with her. And she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. She knew exactly who he was. She knew what had happened. She put it together. She could tell it was a Hebrew child, probably was circumcised, three months old, eighth day circumcision. She said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, so Miriam comes out of the reeds, hi, hey, what are you guys doing? You found a baby. And I know Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's daughter is not like, oh, <laughs> look at you just appeared. I, I have a feeling she knew the whole deal. Pharaoh's daughter's special in this picture. Pharaoh's daughter looks and, and Miriam comes out of the reeds and, um, and said, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Just an innocency of a 10-year-old girl saying, I know a, 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 a Hebrew I, I he- he- mother that doesn't have a baby and she could nurse the baby for you, you know? <laughs> oh, really? It's, do you? Uh-huh, I do. No guile in the kid. I mean, a 10-year-old doesn't, not very good at lying right? And you can, just, you can just see Pharaoh's daughter looking at Miriam going, you're precious too, and goes and gets Jochebed. Jochebed has the child, and, and, uh, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go, and the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. <laughs> so I'm going to pay you to be a mother to your son. If that's not a God thing, I don't know what is. Cast your bread out on the water. And here she casts her son out on the water. And the Lord gives him back. That's faith. And the faith not to kill the child. And the faith not to let Pharaoh have the child. And the faith to trust the Lord with the child. And then the child comes back. And doesn't just come back, but comes back with wages. Amen? I'm thinking we should do that with our children. Just put them on the river and wait until we get wages to raise them. Who's with me? Um, where were we oh here we go then Pharaoh's daughter said to her take this child away nurse him for me and I will give you your wages so the woman took the child nursed him and the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son so she called his name Moses which is a Hebrew word it means out of the water Um, now it's a excuse me it's an Egyptian word that became a Hebrew word Moisha Um, Marty Marty Richter Moisha Moses Moises and, and it's actually a, an Egyptian word that is now in the Hebrew lexicon. It's now a Hebrew word. And there's many similarities in many of the Egyptian words and the Hebrew words today. So Moses, having been drawn out of the waters, the scripture says here, because I drew him out of the water, and she uses this, this term. So we'll stop there, and we'll take a look at it. Here you have Jochebed, and, and the Pharaoh gives a command that every male child is to be killed. The midwives go against the command. God blesses them and gives them houses. And, and here they hide him for three months, and the, and the danger is they're going to die if they're found out. And Miriam sees all of this, knows exactly what's happening. Miriam grows up with this understanding, and now comes a place, we can't do this any longer. And, and they have this picture with the kafar and the pitch, and they know, about, they know about Noah, and they know about the ark, and they know about Abraham. They know all of the history as it's been given to them. 
And, and in faith, the scripture says that we, we read in verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child. There's a calling on this child's life. We have to protect this child. No matter what happens to us, this baby must stay alive. Isn't that what parenting is? See, we want designer children and we want to have them when they're convenient. But children aren't that way. Children require selflessness and sacrifice. I just went through it today with my 17-year-old. And the sacrifice for me was that I wouldn't kill him. (laughs) And by the way, I have a grandson and a granddaughter on the way, which is kind of cool because that's a reward for parents who didn't kill their children. But there was a great cost to their life because they disobeyed the king's command. And so we're going to see here, and we're going to focus on it briefly. We have a conflict with Romans 13, Titus chapter 3. I can go through other aspects of it. God says to obey and respect those in positions of authority over you. When are we allowed to rebel? Was Martin Luther King Jr. right or wrong to stand against racial segregation? He was right. But every pastor in Birmingham, Alabama said he's on the wrong side of history because he was in prison. And his response was, no, you're on the wrong side of history because you're not in prison with me. Every great movement, every social movement in the history of the world began pretty much with Christians. Abolition, Christians. Women's suffrage, Christians. Child labor laws, Christians. Human trafficking, Christians. The Crusades, Christians. A lot of tragedies, travesties happen with Christians who operate in a reverse context. I've shared this with you, and I, I was just, yesterday I was, um, I was at the Ventura County Courthouse. I was testifying on behalf of somebody. And I was sitting with somebody else, and, and I said, you know, well, how do I, how do I pick this? I want to I wanna tie it in. The Lord had given me a direction to tie it in to, to, tonight. You have no idea You have no idea when you are obedient to the Lord, even at great expense to yourself, what will come of that. Here, God is emphasizing in the hall of faith, Hebrews 11, 23, with Amran and Jochebed, not even listed by name, that what they did should be honored in the hall of faith because they disobeyed the king's command, as it says here, and they weren't afraid and they saw a calling on this child, and they did what was necessary at great expense to themselves. Now, the question is, for Christians, the times that we're called to do something spectacular is usually something very mundane, but will require a great expense to us. I'm not saying that I'm going to be in the hall of faith. I'm not even saying that maybe anything will come of it. But I know this. I was asked to do something I was vehemently opposed to, in my flesh. I was asked to go and testify on behalf of somebody else yesterday. I spent six hours in a hallway. I finally got called on. I was asked six questions, seven questions, at which point the district attorney then came up. The the man's attorney said, no more questions, Your Honor. He sits down. The district attorney approaches the bench, whispers to the judge. He calls the other attorney up. The two of them say, okay. And the judge says, uh, Pastor McCoy, we're going to take a break until five of, which is another 15-minute recess. They dismiss the jury, and I come to find out that they dismissed my testimony, struck it from the record, and they sent me home. Now, let me give you a backstory. My vanity, when I was running for office, required that I needed to have some sort of coloration in my pale skin, so I went to a tanning salon. Don't judge me. And I went a couple of times and, and uh, got to know the owner of L.A. Tan. His name's Gary Haw. And Gary, my daughter, started to come with me, and, and Kelly started to befriend him as I did and say hello, and he's very, he's, he's, he's a homosexual, and he's, he lets you know that. He's, like, very flamboyant and kind of crude and off-putting to me in some respects. But I found him refreshingly honest in his debauchery. I don't know how to describe it any other way. 
And he would say things, and I go, "Yeah, that's not real funny." And he would come in, and he would joke. He'd say, uh, "This is my pastor." I'm like, "Gary, you come to church, I'll be your pastor." Not, we're not doing that here. And he would say things like, uh, you know, other customers would come in, and he'd say, uh, "This is Rob McCoy. He's running for assembly. He's a pastor in town, and he's he's going to lie in my bed." I go, "Gary, that's way out of line, buddy. Way out of line." And this is hard for me to engage with him. And, uh, and then Kelly shows me an article on the Acorn. Says that he has been um, arrested and he's on $500,000 bail for uh, being accused of molesting two boys. And they put the ages. And this was in 2012. So the, the case finally comes to court 2017. And I started to do a little research on it. I started inquiring with his customers, inquiring with his employees, because quite honestly, for me, that's a no-brainer. That is a scarlet letter, block him away, bye-bye. I, there isn't, I mean, this is the one remaining violation of the law that it doesn't matter if you're liberal or conservative, everybody's in agreement, lock them up, right? That's why we have Megan's Law, and you post him, we know where everybody is. And we all seeing that? And I'm, I'm ready to call it quits. But the Lord pushes me to press in. I go, but Gary, I read the article. I've inquired and started asking him questions. I said, tell me a little bit about your life. He was so brutally honest, it was frightening. And as I listened and ministered to him, and I'd come back. In days, I wouldn't even come to tan. We'd just sit and talk. He told me about his dad. And here he was ministering to his father, reconciling with him at the end of his life. His father ended up dying. I started hearing the entirety of the story and getting the why for what he did. I knew about his past. He was candid with it. He wasn't, he didn't hide any of it. He just laid it out there and it was brutal. And he goes, Rob, my life has been a screw up. And he, he laid it out. And so I started to inquire the other employees and three of them walk with the Lord and I know him pretty well. One in particular, I really started to press me. He goes, it is a railroad job. Gary's guilty of a number of things in life, but that is not one of them. And then I started to inquire about those two and I heard the story. And of the three accusers, two dropped out because their testimonies, they were lies and they were caught in a lie. And there was one remaining. And finally, at that point, I went to Gary and I said, Gary, I gotta tell you something. There's no reason why I should have you as a friend. But I am burdened and I can't sleep. The Lord wants me to testify on your behalf. He was stunned. Absolutely stunned. And when I went there and I testified on his behalf and they struck it from the record, I thought, Lord, six hours. But the entire six hours I was there, I shared the Lord with three people. One in particular was a young man who hasn't been to church, back to church. He went to Hillcrest, hadn't been to church in a long time, and there he was. I had one of the most profound, deep conversations with him. And I'm watching as God's using this, and Gary is moved that I'm there. And he said, Rob, will you come back for the closing arguments so the jury can see you there? I said, I'll be there. I'll be there. Now, what's going to come of that? I don't know. All I know is this. I had to go there. I asked the Lord not to. I didn't want to. I knew I had to be there. I, I would gain nothing from it politically. The DEA, Greg Totten is a Republican. If, I mean, I, this, is, this is destroying me in the world of politics. But it was the right thing to do. So I'm no Moses. I'm no Jochebed. I'm no Amron. But there comes a point in your life where it's going to cost you something dearly but you have to do it. You have to do it. You know, Christians are losing on every front except for one in the culture war. We're winning in the war against abortion. And that's because there's people willing to, t to stand up. And it comes at great expense to themselves. And they're ridiculed in the body of Christ. But like the midwives... And like Amron and Jochebed, they're, they're making a stand. And the question is, you can avoid controversy, you can avoid conflict, you can avoid difficulty, but the problem is you have to live with your conscience. I couldn't do that. 
And we can whistle while we drive down Hillcrest and see the Planned Parenthood and just pretend it's not there. But every day in our community, that is a place where children are killed. I don't know how many are scheduled. I don't know what level, but it is an abortion clinic in our community. And when I stood in opposition to that, they blamed me for the burning of the Planned Parenthood when they found out that it was a disgruntled boyfriend of, a, of an employee that worked there. That wasn't my fault. I didn't do that. But the question is, look at the Hebrew midwives. They're blessed by the Lord. Amron and Jochebed are all listed in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, in the hall of faith. For what reason? They disobeyed the king's command. They said in Nazi Germany that when the rail cars would go through filled with Jews dying, that they would hear them in their services on Sunday crying and screaming in the rail cars. And they said the Christians to deal with it would just sing louder. So... How did a nation that was responsible for Martin Luther and the propagation of the gospel in one generation annihilate 6 million Jews and be responsible for the death of over 50 million people? The church just became silent. They didn't move on their convictions. They didn't stand. And it's the ones that usually stand that you want to yell at them and tell them to sit down because they're making an issue. And you can imagine it wasn't just Jochebed and Amran. It was the neighbors going, you have got to get rid of this child. Do something. We're all going to be affected. And knowing Pharaoh, he probably, whose child is this? If you don't tell me, we're going to kill you. And there's ways to get at people and destroy a community. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7, please. Look at verse 17. This is Stephen's first and only sermon until they killed him. Verse 17, he says, giving them a history of Israel says, but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him Uh, took him away and brought him up as their own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deed. He was also very handsome. And he was mighty in words and deed and educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. That's pretty cool. Look at this one. Uh, I'll read it to you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 29. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. He takes the weak things to confound the wisdom of the wise. He saved the Israelites with a baby, and he did it with a mom and a dad who none of you knew their name except for Brett knew one. And you're sitting here tonight with the scriptures that Moses wrote. And you know where he learned to write? With all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He got an education when the rest of them were treated as slaves. And he was able to put together Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He was given the Ten Commandments. He led millions of people out of bondage. And it all began with two people saying, I'm going to make a difference. And we don't know anything else about him. And they were actually a funky family. He married his aunt. Now, I don't care who you are or where you come from. I'm looking around. 
I don't know anyone who's married to their aunt right now in the room. God uses the foolish things to confound the wisdom of the wise. Obscure names that absolutely transformed our life and we're seated here tonight because of what these two did. That's pretty spectacular. And this man learned how to write and he recorded everything you're holding. And God picked him and it was a baby. Maybe Gary Haw will have a huge transformation and be used of the Lord in a powerful way. I don't know. Maybe the young fellow that I sat with, Sean. I, I, I will say this. I'm grateful for, for Lois Early and Metaris McPherson. Lois Early was a childless woman, never had any kids. She's my godmother, my godfather, Admiral Early. My mother had had two abortions between my sister and myself. She's six years older than us, than me. All my siblings are way older than me, and then there's me. My mom had had two abortions in Japan, and she thought she could have any more kids. My dad was on a Westpac cruise, found out, my mom found out she was pregnant with me, and she was now stationed in San Diego, and she went and inquired of the commanding officer's wife, Lois Early, Rear Admiral Robert Early, asking her where one would obtain an abortion in San Diego in 1963 because my dad didn't want any more kids. They couldn't afford them. A lieutenant commander's salary, four kids. And my dad was absolutely serious about that. And my mom just went and confided in the commanding officer's wife, assuming that she was childless by choice to further her husband's career. And Lois said, Louise, let me get back to you. And, And Lois went and met with the other admiral's wife. They were dear friends. They played bridge together, Med, Med McPherson, or Med Fowler, excuse me. And Med Fowler and Lois Early found out about it. And the two of them, instead of giving my mom the advice that she was seeking, without my mother's permission, they put on a baby shower with all the officers' wives. And, and Medrice Fowler bought my crib And Lois Early became my godmother. I'm named after her husband, Robert Early. And here's the coolest part. My mom never told me that story until later in life. And it took a while because many of you already know the story, but it ties in. I was struggling in my Christian walk. I'd gotten involved with this woman And she became pregnant and we were going to marry. So I went to go tell my parents we were getting married. My mom and my dad flipped out because the girl was Hispanic. My parents were very prejudiced. My my brother had married a Guatemalan and I was the last great white hope. (laughs) And my mom flipped. And my dad and mom weren't Christians. And my dad looks at me and he says, Rob, you don't need to make a a mess, make a mistake. Just have her get an abortion and move on with your life. And if the two of you marry, you can do it later, but don't get married over all this. I said, Dad, I can't do that. It's against what I believe. And my dad said, look where your beliefs have gotten you so far. And I, I said, Dad, that's my mistake, not God's. And then my dad threw down the hammer. This is the king's command. My dad said, you marry that woman, give birth to that child, you'll never step foot in the house again. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It was in Sacramento, living room. I looked at my mom and dad. My lip was quivering. I was scared to death. My dad had this ability to shake his head when he was talking to you like a, na- a Navy captain. And it was just, you know, he was, he was patriotic. He'd lay down stripes. I'd see stars, you know. <laughs> and he's looking at me and, and he's giving me that glare. My mother's nodding in affirmation. And I said, well, mom, dad, I love you. And I'm going to miss you. And I got up and I walked out. And they were true to their word. They never called my siblings, I was persona non grata, I was shut off. Through the process of time, I come to find out it's not my baby, it's my college pastor's baby, my fiance had slept, I mean, it was a crazy story. They end up, she ends up giving birth because we didn't want to do an amniocentesis because it was dangerous to the baby, we had to wait till it was born, this was back in the 80s. And so when we did the blood test, it ended up being his. I didn't believe it, he didn't believe it, his wife didn't believe it, my ex-fiance didn't believe it took the blood test again. It was conclusively his. And in the process of time, I had reacquainted with a friend that I had met years ago in, a, in the dollar movies in San Diego. 
and uh, she'd always had a boyfriend. I'd always, she, and I'd always had a girlfriend and we got reconnected. We'd always remember each other on our birthdays. One of the most amazing people I've ever met. Every time I was around them, they made me laugh. And it was Michelle. And she was going to Cal Poly and she'd just come to Christ. We started talking and I told her about this and, and she knew about this while the lady was pregnant. And, and I'm thinking, why do you want to hang out with me? You're going to be raising somebody else's kid. And when the baby was born and all this occurred, I just realized this is the woman I've always been supposed to marry. And so I asked Michelle if she'd marry me. She said, yes. Fast forward, I called my mom. I said, mom, I'm getting married. She said, I thought you already were married because we hadn't talked. I said, no, um, it's somebody else I'm marrying. She said, well, who is it this time? <laughs> and I said, well, her name is Mich- her, her, her birth name is Metarese uh, Coletti, but she goes by Michelle. And nobody's ever heard the name Metarese, and, and probably you haven't. And my mom goes, I know a Metarese. I go, you do? And she goes, yes. I go, I know, she says, I know a Metarese Fowler. I said, that's Michelle's grandmother. The lady who bought my crib. Yeah. And she said, Rob, did you know that Med was there when you were born? I said, no, I didn't know that. Then we go fast forward through this whole series of events. Michelle melts my mother's heart. My mom confesses to having had the two abortions to Father Michael Murphy. She comes to Christ through Father Murphy. Her whole life changes. My dad comes to Christ. Now my mom's dying of cancer. I go to visit her. She's looking forlorn out the window. She turns over her shoulder. She sees me walk in, not as her son, but as her pastor. And she says, Rob, have I made a mistake? I said, no, mom. The surgery, I know in the 80s, in your 80s, having a surgery is dangerous, but if you're healed, you have years left. If you're not, you just embrace it with the strength of the Lord. And she did, she resolved. And then she says, Rob, I have to tell you something. I said, what's that, mom? And she tells me the story about Lois Early and Med, Med Fowler putting on the baby shower and saving my life. And she started crying. She said, you know, I'm so grateful that they did that. And in a sense, I'm no Moses but those were Hebrew midwives is an illustration for me. They did the right thing. They did the right thing. And because they did the right thing, I got to lead Lois to the Lord and I got to lead Med to the Lord before she died. You can go through a series of justifications for not doing anything. But I'm glad those ladies did that. And I think of how many children nobody has an advocate for. And nobody's a voice for them. And we just drive down Hillcrest every day. Somebody's sitting in a hallway at at the justice courthouse. Somebody in a tanning salon. Reach into their world. Affect the culture. Do the right thing for life. And when the scripture just says this in passing, by faith, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a called or beautiful or anointed child and they were not afraid of the king's command. You know, the other thing that you see with Jochebed is she, she imparted faith to Moses because when he got older in Exodus he walked away from the Egyptians and understood his calling in life because his mother had instilled that in him you know we can protect life and stand in opposition to abortion but don't forget there's children that need to be raised There's over 3,000 kids in our foster program in Ventura County. And I can think of almost every house in Thousand Oaks that has a spare bedroom or could fit another bed. And those are lives that could powerfully affect another generation. 
And why are we not doing that? And I think we could. I think we have the ability to do that in our lifetime. And they need that. They grow up in a Christian home. They have the opportunity to witness things. And, and I, I've said before, I tried to teach my children table manners, but they just eat like me. And what's the point on that? The point is this, things are caught, not taught. You want to teach them faith? Do something that requires it. Something that will come at great expense to you. Do it. The body of Christ lives to talk about it and study it, but let's do it. I'm inspired by Lois Early and Med Fowler. I'm moved by their lives. I am who I am today because they did what they did. And my mom was moved. And every child has potential and the opportunity to look into that life and make a difference. I would say uh, in Hebrews eleven twenty five, the scripture says, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. This is Moses. Where did he learn that? And I think Jochebed gave him a perspective, a long view on life. And I'll close with this and then we'll get out early tonight, but I'll close with this. I was with my son Daniel today and he's 17 and he's trying to figure out to be a man and he's gotten a couple of offers to schools and he's waiting on the one he's really excited about and he's got a car and he's, you know, he just, you know. And he's got muscles and he's just chiseled and he looks good and he's looking at his dad who's gray and getting soft and He's like, I got this, you know, contending with his mom a little bit. And I got to I gotta say, I, I felt like coming home and saying, you want to do that? You want to do that? You want to contend in my house? Because if you want to be head of the house, I'm going to let you do it. Only not the head of this house. Why don't you go find your own? And I was ready to lay it down. That's Rob in the flesh. And the Lord convicted me like he did with Gary. And my wife, she said, Rob, I want you not to give the enemy reason to split him and give him justification for being rebellious. Go love on him. Reason with him sweetly. Like, oh, you understand what a man does, baby. Come on. And I prayed about it and I went and I sat down with him. I go, Daniel, what is going on? I said, my flesh wanted and I laid it out. And I said, but the Lord, through your mom and through just his conviction on my heart, son, this is not, this doesn't define you. This is, this is an aberration that's in front of me. And he goes, dad, I'm so sorry. And he'd already been convicted by the time I came in. And, and I said, son, when I travel, I love to travel alone. I got my suitcase. I know exactly where it goes in the overhead. I know the seats to get. I know exactly the connections to make. I know where to park in the airport. I know exactly how much time I need. I know when to wake up. I know exactly, I know everything. I know what to order from the stewardess. I know not how to be complication into difficulty. And I'm invisible as I travel. And I know just how to do it. And then your mom says, can I go with you? And I remember when I go, yeah, no, that'd be great. I'd love, yeah, of course. I'd love to have company. It'd be awesome. And, you know, the plane lands, and we've been flying for hours, and we get off, and I'm like, let's go get the rental car. Let's get to the hotel. Let's get moving. She goes, I have to use the restroom. I'm like, you, we, we, they, we could, the plane had one. We could have done this hours ago. And now you get off and every woman, for some reason, has to use the restroom after they get off the plane. And then I got to wait outside with the luggage. And can you grab my bag in the overhead? And I'm lugging the bags and I'm like, we're not getting anywhere. This is crazy, woman. And could, I just want a pillow and could you, I don't want ice and I just want the, this is complicated. This is so complicated. I always find that when she travels with me, though, when I'm, wherever I am, there's this spiritual peace and I feel 
contentment, unlike the trials I have when I'm traveling alone, the struggles. And I'm weighing it, and, I, and it would frustrate me, and I'll just boil it down to this. I told Daniel, I said, when I'm, I said, I was struggling with it when I traveled with her. I get so irritated. And it would, you could read it on my face. I, I stink at poker. You can read me a mile away. You know exactly what I have. <laughs> you know? And, and then it occurred to me one day, I was just complaining to the Lord on the flight after she had asked for something, and I had to interrupt the stewardess to get whatever it was she wanted. And I just, and she goes, what's wrong? Why is your face? I'm not upset. You know, poker, I'm losing. And I, I, and, and I, I just turned, I, I said, I'm just going to rest. And as I sat there and I was reading the scriptures, and the Lord just said, why are you so irritated? And I go, because she's high maintenance. Hang on. And the Lord said, I'm, I'm sorry, is this your trip? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm the principal person and I'm, I'm be speaking at this event. She's a tag along. <laughs> and the Lord said, do you know why you are where you are? It's because she is who she is. And he said, you think you're the principal. No, Rob, she is. And you're her traveling assistant. She's been serving you the whole time. And if you want to be great in my kingdom, you'll be a servant of all. She's the most important person. If you want a perspective and you want to enjoy this trip, you now have a new title. You're her traveling assistant. And it was like revelational. And I thought, yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it was joy. Every time we travel together, honey, I'm your travel assistant. And I'm excited about it. I try to figure out ways to make her trip pleasant. We'll put it right. What can I get? Oh, your headphones. I know exactly where those are because you usually ask for them. And I put them right on the top pocket. I can get those without any difficulty. And you've got your little, and I have the, and I know, ooh, and I got it down. And I know how to carry the suitcase and the luggage. And I know what time to wake her up because she doesn't like to wake up. And I know that when I say we usually are late and I'm usually waiting for her. So I go, oh, just move it a little bit up further. And I'm really gentle and waking her up. And I figure all these things out. And I got to tell you, it's fun to travel with her now. I really enjoy it. And I was telling my son, your problem is when you come home, you feel like you have to tolerate your mother with all the things that she has and the list of the things that she wants you to do. You, you got it all wrong, son. You don't tolerate her. You serve her. Change your perspective and realize you have the great ability to serve your mother. It changed everything. He started crying. I did too. I was, I'm like, where did that come from? I'm a wise guy. <laughs> I said, son, that'll, that'll serve you well in life. And he went in, he apologized to his mom, resolved it, and all these things. Jochebed. Amron. Servants servants that's what we're called to be Lois med servants nothing is too small or difficult we are given the privilege to do it amen